0: So our whole goal is just to be better at communicating a lot of these things. If you're in the sort of know or the kind of inner workings there of what we do with mission, then maybe you've heard. But if you haven't, uh, then you have it. So we'll start making note on where they are on the map, so when you walk by there upside down, you can kind of realize where Guatemala is in the wrong angle, but it's there. And then as we go and add them, we'll be adding all the families that we support, local and global. Uh, we have missionaries that we've supported all, all over the world, from France to Egypt to um, uh, to China to um, uh, Guatemala, obviously local and otherwise, California, all kinds of places. So we'll be talking about all of them. So that's really our heartbeat. But it feeds into this idea, which is really cool, of what we're talking about this morning, which is this idea. Of unity in the body of Christ, that we are essentially all one. Now, if you've been with us for the 13 weeks that we've been in Ephesians or just for the past five weeks that we've been in chapter two, you'll recognize that Paul's doing something really important. And I mentioned this earlier before we kind of jumped into worship, but he's doing something really important, especially in chapter two, where he's making this sort of great leveling kind of concept, where he's leveling the playing field of people. And he starts off in chapter 2 by reminding us that we are all fully and totally sinful and deserve God's wrath. Like, we are all destined for destruction. That is the reality of every human apart from Christ. No matter what family you're from, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, you're from somewhere else, whether you're a male or a female or wherever you're from, you are all due the wrath of God's uh, vengeance because of your sinfulness. Every single one of us. He says, that's everybody on the same playing field. He says, however... But Christ, right, came, reconciled us to God through his death on the cross and resurrection and puts us all in this place where we are now saved and have access to holy God. So essentially what he's doing is he's setting the Jews and the Gentiles, which includes you and I, into this place where we are all in the exact same scenario. We are undeserving sinful, broken people that deserve God's wrath, who God in his infinite, incredible love sent his son Jesus, that if we put our faith in him, we'll have eternal life and have full access to him. And Paul does that to set everyone up to say, because God has done this incredibly new thing in Christ where we are all one, and he's building to the unity. And Brandon stepped us into that last week when he talked about the idea of the circumcised and the uncircumcised that Paul introduced in verses 11 through 13. He basically puts the entire kind of group of all of humans into these two categories, right? There's the circumcised, the Jewish, and there's the uncircumcised, the Gentile. Now that's the giant lump of these two huge, from a biblical standpoint, races of people, right? There are God's people, the Jewish, that he has chosen and put aside and 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 marked and made holy and set apart from the world. And then there are the uncircumcised Gentiles. And essentially what Paul is setting us up for and what Brandon introduced us to is the great reconciliation that's coming between these two groups Groups, that the law intentionally set these groups apart, and through Christ, as He fulfills the law, God intentionally fused them together as one, and he's building us to the beauty of the body of Christ, of the church, of of what we do here in this room, but also what we're connected with all around the world, including all the way down into Guatemala with the Morales family who love and trust Jesus, who are as much our brothers and sisters as the person sitting on your right or on your left. And this is what Paul's doing. He's getting the church to a place where it understands the beauty of its oneness because of what Christ has done. And so we're going to take that one step further this morning, and we're going to explore that oneness. That reconciliation in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2 with some very intentional things. Now, those of you been with us for Ephesians, we've made a couple of goals. We're trying to do smaller swaths of text to really go in deeply. And we thought maybe that would make our sermons a little shorter and we'd have some more application. They're just getting longer. It's just, it's just the way that is. But we're, we're going deeper and we're pulling out some application pieces, which we're going to do this morning. We're going to see a few real deep theological ideas and then some takeaways that we have that we can put in practice personally as we walk out of this place together. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. We'll be down through 18. And then let's uh, pray together. Uh, and we'll ask God to teach our hearts, and then we'll just sort of dive into it this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the reality of what you're doing as God, that you are the uniter of people. And not only have you reconciled us to yourself through Christ, but you reconciled us to one another, that there is no more division, no more brokenness. Lord, you are the healer of all things. And the fact that we can be united with families like the Morales family in Guatemala, Lord, because of our relationship with Jesus, alone, not because of anything else, but because you have knit us together with Christ, that they are our brothers and sisters, and that there are countless millions of those around the globe and throughout time, Lord, is remarkable. The fact that we sit next to people in worship that aren't like us, aren't from the same town, aren't from the same place, same background, may not look the same or same ethnicity or same socioeconomic status, but we are all one in Christ is remarkable. You are the great leveler. You are the reconciler. You are the one that brings wholeness to all things that are broken. So Lord, this morning, what I pray that you would remind us of is some of the simple truths we've learned along the way, and then open our eyes to the uniqueness of the body of Christ and what our role is in that uniqueness. Take a moment, just as you sit here this morning, before we open God's word, and just just ask God to teach your heart. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of inviting God to teach us. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. So take a moment and just pray in your own heart that God would teach you something this morning. Personally, he would teach your heart. take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you. Maybe they're in front or behind, somewhere in that general area or just wherever. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Care about the spiritual growth and development of the people around you. Even if you think it's a little weird, you're here for the first time, just engage with that with me for just a moment and just say, God, move in this person's life. Even if you don't know their name, just pray for that person that's sitting next to you. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you instruct our hearts, and we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to pick up in 13 because I want you to see where Brandon left us last week because this is kind of what Paul, Paul, all these are really tied together, right? They're not meant to be broken up the way we're breaking them up as we work through them on Sunday. So I want you to see where we left off and and where we're going and we're going to kind of move through it kind of quickly because what Paul's doing here is he's reiterating something that he's already said twice in chapter one, twice in chapter two and in verse 13, but he's coming at it from a different angle. So we're going to move through these pieces a little bit quickly because we've seen them, but I want you to hear the power in which he's. Says them, and we'll pull out some theological ideas that are really important to understand. But let's start in verse 13, but our focus is going to be 14 through 18 this morning. <clears throat> but now in Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier by dividing the wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to god through the cross by which he put to death their hostility he came and preached peace to you who were far away and to those who were near for through him we both have access to the father by one spirit. So you can see that Paul is still addressing these two groups of people. And the church in Ephesus was made up of these two groups of people. It was made up of the circumcised, the Jewish, and it was made up of the uncircumcised, the Gentile. And basically, anyone, no matter where you were from or what part of life you walk from, socioeconomic or racially or country, if you were not Jewish, you were Gentile. So if you are not part of God's covenant family that was established thousands of years prior through Abraham, then you are not part of that circumcised community. You are a part of the Gentile community. And the church, the New Testament church, is made up of these people. In fact, it's really hard for us to understand the challenge it would have been for the Jewish mind to grasp the idea that they could be worshiping alongside non-Jewish people. God had established a ceremonial law, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a moment, had established a ceremonial law which intentionally separated the Jews from the rest of the world. He wanted the Jews to be separate from the world so, number one, they wouldn't become like the world, and number two, they would be the example by which the world would see the incredible grace and goodness and kind of movement of God, right? That was the reason the law existed was he was separating the people to demonstrate who he was to a world that was full and steeped in sin and to keep the Jews from falling into that world. And the ceremonial law was strong. They couldn't intermarry. They weren't allowed to worship the way the world worshiped. All those things that we know to be part of the Old Testament law, God established. And for thousands and thousands of years, the Jews and Gentiles were separate in how they engaged in worship. And the Jewish people saw them as unclean literally they wouldn't engage with them right so we understand that what paul is actually doing here is really remarkable because what's happening in ephesus and in all the new testament churches was there was a gathering of both jewish believers and gentile believers and they were in the same room and they were worshiping the same god and we can't underestimate or kind of kind of unsell how incredibly challenging this was mentally for a lot of those folks. This was a huge, huge deal. And it's astonishing that this is what Paul is doing and what the church is becoming. But this is what's happening. And so Paul sets that up by saying, look, these are the two groups. This is the church. This is who we are. And he says, there's a few things in here I want you to understand. He says essentially the same thing he's been telling us for the past few uh, verses here, the past few verses, which is our only hope really is in Christ. Right? He starts that off in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. He is our hope. He is all that we have. And he's talking fully about Christ. So in order to understand this reconciliation that's going to be transpiring, we have to understand that our only peace with God and with other people is going to come through Jesus. Now, the reason I say Paul's mentioned this before is because he has. He says that we were enemies with God, and the only reason that we have peace with God at all is through Christ, meaning you can't work your way to peace with God. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to deserve it. You can't do enough good deeds or show up enough at worship or be nice enough to people to have God look at you and say, you know what, that was a great job. You and I are good now, right? That doesn't happen. We are so alienated and so full of sin that there is nothing that we can do. We are forever aliens and enemies of God Because of our evil behavior, because of our sin, except that Christ came to fulfill and bridge that gap of hostility and be peace. So Jesus is our peace between us and God. That's it. There is no other solution. But not only is Jesus our peace between us and God, what we learn about the reconciliation of Jesus between us and God is that it also reconciles us to each other. And That's a surprise. And in verse 14, he begins to intro this idea that we are now going to have peace through Christ with our relationships with one another. So not only has God made peace in us through Christ, but he has made peace with one another through Christ. And this is astonishing. Astonishing, because thousands of years of hostility and separation are being torn apart. But what we learn in that first sentence is that our only hope for peace Is Christ. Now, the cool thing about this is that some 50 years ago, that would have been it wouldn't have been a controversial statement at all from any of our churches and any of the pulpits across America. But today, saying that our only hope for peace is Christ is really controversial. We probably don't even hear it much from our pulpits or stages or podiums or places that the gospels preach because we look for peace anywhere and everywhere else, right? We look for peace in all kinds of places other than just Jesus. We look for it in, in the appreciation of our, of our friends or in our work or in social media likes or the way our spouse treats us or how the people around us give us praise, the applause of our friends. We look for peace through material things, through financial gain, through setting up a, a hedge of protection around us so that when the world comes at us with its difficult times, we feel safe. We associate peace with all of those things because that's what we believe gives our hearts rest. But we know, from, even from our study in Ephesians and all these other places, that that's not real peace. They're just worldly things. Peace only comes through Christ. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, in his lectures on the book of Romans, wrote this line. He essentially said, the perversity of man is that he seeks peace before righteousness and therefore consequently finds no peace. What he essentially says is that humans are designed in the way that we orient our sinful nature to try and seek peace before we seek the things of God. And in doing so, in seeking peace by gathering up enough financial wealth or enough kind of social status or enough, enough thing, people that tell us we're really great or that we're good at our job or whatever those things are, by establishing enough of those things, we think we have enough peace that that will still our heart, that it will still our restless hearts if we do those things. And so we seek peace first, and the righteousness of God second, and therefore we will never truly find peace. It means that you can chase all the things of the world and still feel really empty. It means you can establish an unbelievable amount of of financial wealth here on earth. You can establish a ton of social clout. You can establish a great reputation. You can have people around you saying, man, Trev, you are great, and I can be as empty and dead inside as always what Paul's essentially setting the church up for is that same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 6:33 which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you peace is in all those things it's one of those things so what do we do we seek first right seek first the kingdom of God who is our peace it's a person, it's Jesus, it's not something else. If you're restlessly searching for something else to bring you peace, better marriage, better home life, better financial security, better job, more of these things, you will endlessly be searching and searching and searching. Well, Paul's setting up in the church is to say this before we move any farther, our only hope for peace is Christ, right? Right there. In verse 14, He Himself is our peace. If you don't have peace this morning, right, if you're restless in your relationship with the Lord, ask yourself what you're putting in front of Him, right? What are you seeking first? Are you seeking peace through all these other things and righteousness, second, or are you seeking Jesus? Jesus, I just wanna know you. I just wanna trust you. I just wanna believe in you. I just want you to be all that I need. We seek Christ first. Peace comes because it's in him. So important to note there, but let's continue in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostilities. So now we're back to really talking about this idea of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and in that reconciliation, he has reconciled believer to believer. So the first thing that we saw is that our only hope for peace is Jesus, period. And not only does Jesus bring us hope to with our relationship with the Lord, he brings us reconciliation to one another. It's a byproduct of the reconciling that God does from us to him. It reconciles believer to believer because you've been made new in Christ. And if you have someone else next to you that believes in Jesus, he or she has been made new in Christ. Therefore, we are both new. We are completely new creations. We are now reconciled to each other because of the reconciling work that Christ did. Now this is important in our context, right? Because you have these two groups of people that historically not only not get along, didn't coexist, didn't co-worship, didn't co-mingle, didn't share lives. And now that we've both been made fully new in Christ because Jesus is our peace, we now have peace here. We are now reconciled together. Now, I don't think we'll ever grasp the stunning nature of what Paul is saying because we are not living in those times. But in the temple at the time right there, there is a huge example of this that is unfolding for them. So in 19 BC, when Herod the Great rebuilt the temple, right? It was the the greatest religious monument ever built by far, by two and a half times, anything that was ever that size, right? It was 1,000 feet, or 1,200 feet long north to south, 900 feet east to west. The temple enclosure itself was 15 stories tall when Herod began this project. It was, the temple was unbelievable. And it had five courts, and the largest of all those courts was called the Gentile Court. And it was the outside area before you could go into the temple enclosure. And it had a wall around it that was five feet tall, and that was called the Gentile Wall. In Hebrew, it's called the Sorek. It had 13 openings, and it was 1,200 feet in diameter. And those 13 openings were to allow the Jewish people to pass from the Gentile Court into the temple enclosure. And it was called the Gentile court, not because the Jews couldn't go there because where the Gentiles were. It's because that's where the Gentiles had to stay. There were signs placed everywhere in three languages that says, do not enter. In fact, they found one of these signs, an archaeological dig. It's actually in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. And it says, there is no entry under penalty by death. So what you have is that Herod right, rebuilt the temple, and he built this Jewish court based on the idea that comes out of Isaiah 56, where Isaiah says, the temple will be the place where the entirety of God, the people of God from all nations will worship, and the Jewish people believed that, but they wanted to keep the Gentiles out of God's actual holy and inner sanctum, so they built them a special place that only they could go, or where they could go to worship, where they wouldn't actually have to worship side by side with the Jews. So it was a nod to Isaiah, but it kept the Gentiles separate. And it was most literally a five-foot wall, the Sorak, that the Gentiles couldn't cross to worship God or they'd be paid the penalty of death. So even if you were a Gentile at the time that believed in God and hadn't fully kind of become Jewish, you could not cross the wall. Now think about that. Keep that in context for just a quick second and listen to this verse again, what Paul says, and think about what he's doing. For he himself is our peace. He who has made the two one, right? The circumcised and the uncircumcised, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Figuratively, right? Jesus, not only, well literally he did this, but not only did he tear the temple curtain in two from top to bottom that separated the inner sanctum of the, 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 the temple, the holy of holies, and the places that normal people, Jewish people could worship, giving full access to people to God, but he divided and broke down the barrier of the Gentile wall as well, the wall of hostility, the wall that kept us worshiping separate. Jesus, the reconciler, reconciles us to God by tearing the temple and reconciles us to another by knocking down the sorek, giving Gentiles, you and I, full access to holy, mighty, majestic God. Do you see what Paul is saying here to the church gathered in Ephesus? He's saying there's no longer anything that separates you. God has made us all new in Christ. He has reconciled us to God. We all have access to the inner holy sanctum, the Sorek, the dividing wall, that thing that was there no longer exists. It's been knocked down. He's saying figuratively, Gentiles, people that aren't Jewish, you are not only welcome, you are one. And he says it in this way. He says, and the two became one. The two became one. It's pretty remarkable, right? That he takes these two people that for 4,000 years have been separated intentionally by God, and they become one. What that essentially means is that there is one group of people. By the second century, it's been well documented that the believers were known and actually referred to themselves as the third race. That there was no longer the Jewish, there was no longer the Gentile, there was this one new thing. They were all believers. didn't matter where they were from, what their socioeconomic status was, what race they were, what their skin color was. They were gathered in Ephesus as a trade city from all over the world. And they were all gathered together. And Paul says, every single one of you in here is in the same family. Now, we don't really grasp that too deeply because we don't have a whole lot of super brokenness in our identity as the body of Christ. But if you go globally, you'll see how ethnicities are super segregated when it comes to religious things, even within the context of, of the church. i told the story before, but one of these sort of great examples of this to me was when we were in China in 2000, I don't know, it could have been 13 or 18, one of the times we were there, I can't really remember, I think it was the 13 one, first time there. uh, We were invited to come to China, they were putting on a discipleship school trying to train believers in the underground church. So in China at the the time, and even still today, it is um, illegal on any level to not a Christian, but to be a Christian that worships outside of the government-sanctioned church. So you can be a Christian in China as long as you worship in the government-sanctioned church. And the government-sanctioned church has control over the pastors, has control over the population, knows who you are, and waters essentially everything down by having all the government interference. So if you are a true believer that doesn't want to worship within the context of the government-sanctioned church, then you have to worship underground. And underground is both literal and figuratively. Uh, They meet in, in places that are hidden. Um, because it is illegal at that point in time to be a believer and gather with a church that is not sanctioned by the government. And so we were invited over by a group that was working with the underground church, putting on a discipleship school. And so each day we would break into groups and we would teach. And I taught, uh, my time there I taught to the book of Philippians, to a group of about seven college-age kids that were gathered in an apartment every day. They would come for four hours and we would teach the gospel. And then we go and do various things with our missionaries in the afternoon. Part of the reason that we're, ch- we're talking about mission a lot is that we're changing our philosophy and how we think about mission as a church. This is a whole nother aside. We love to be invited to go. We're not just going to go send teams and drop them in missionaries' laps and say, hey, here's 13 folks from the U.S., like, let us paint your curbs or whatever. Like, we want to be invited to come if we're going to be beneficial. And so they invite us to come, and so we said, absolutely, we'd love to come. And we served at that point in time as sort of an outside teaching resource and a break for those that were doing the teaching, and it was a great opportunity to use us as a tool to demonstrate to those people that never see other believers, that very seldom see other believers, that around the world there are people that love them and care for them and pray for them. And so we were invited to go and do that. And so long story really short, we spent uh, 10 days in China doing that. And uh, everyone we went, we went by train. We sort of stuck out like a sore thumb. I'm more than most people. I'm like a Sasquatch in China. Like, I'm a huge human. In fact, uh, we were doing an English school one night, and somebody asked me if in, their, in their great broken Chinese English, are you a giant from your land, right? <laughs> I was like, first of all, never say that again. Um, and no. And no, uh, but I see what you say because when I stand on the subway in China, I literally can see wall to wall. Like everyone's head, and I'm only like six two. everyone's heads come under my chin. And so I do look and stand out. Well, we were bordering, we were boarding the train and it, I mean, we're talking about millions of people, right? So there's thousands upon thousands on these train platforms and they're all pushing to get in and I'm standing there in my backpack and and we're told as we're there to just be cautious, right? Like, don't be afraid, but be cautious. If someone asks you what we're doing there, we're there teaching English. We're doing these kind of things. We're, we're tourists, but we're, you know, we're not there. Don't say, oh, we're here working with the underground church, telling people about Jesus. Uh, don't do that, right? You jeopardize nothing. So we're getting off this train. We're pushing through, and this guy stops right in front of me, young guy, probably in his 20s, early 20s. And he looks at me, and I've said this before. You've probably heard the story. He says, are you a believer? Here we are in a groups of probably ten thousand people on this train platform, right? And I think, uh, uh, um, do I do I say yes? Is that going to jeopardize? Because I don't care about myself and so, but am I going to jeopardize our our missionaries that we're here? And they're going to be like, who are you here with? And so I just had this moment where I was like, I don't really know what to do. But essentially, I just said yes because it was a true statement, and I was. And he says, Are you a believer? And I said yes. And he just takes his arms and he throws them around me and just hugs me. And I'm, my, it kind of got me pinned in like this. <laughs> I'm not a real hugger, anyway. But I, he just held me. And I thought and then he looks at me as he kind of breaks off this hug and he says, "Brother." And then he walks away. And I thought, "Whoa! He didn't ask me what denomination I was a part of, yeah, but we were Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, Eastern Baptist, United Methodist, not United Methodist, sad, sorry, whatever, this, that, non-denominational, interdenominational. Do I go to life church? He didn't ask me these questions. He just said, are you a believer? And he called me brother, which has never happened to me, right? Anytime I tell somebody I'm a pastor, they always say, oh, first question is always, oh, really? How, uh, how big is your church? That's the first question I always get. And I'm always like, well, we got some pretty big people. I got a couple of six sevens in the back. Chase and you know these guys are here and Burton we're pretty big and we could form a no and they're like, how how you know how large how big is your church and or or you know what denomination are you or or those kind of things and no one in China ever asks us anything they just wanted to know that we love Jesus and so what you see and what Paul's doing here is he's reminding this group of believers that they're one the two have become one right he had been reconciled to each other through Christ. Last thing, we're going to speed this up. The third thing, and I want you to see, we'll do this one really quickly, comes in verse 15. and Basically this, that Jesus abolished the law by fulfilling it in Christ. So look in verse 15. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man, out of the two, making peace. So, what did God do? He abolished the ceremonial law and he had established it, right? God established the ceremonial law through Moses. This is what he did. To keep the Jewish people separate, to remind them that they're not part of the world, to separate them from the world, and to show the world who God truly is. And but that law, and it it's much as it was right, it was always imperfect because it could never be fully lived. And the law always pointed to Jesus. And so when Jesus came and he walked this earth and he demonstrated how to live in this manner, he pointed right to God's reconciliation and on the cross he becomes the fulfillment and the abolishment and the obliteration of the law all at the same time. He brings the law to its fulfillment, how it was supposed to be lived, and he abolishes it by making peace between humanity and God. So the ceremonial law of hostility, which set these people apart, was obliterated by Christ on the cross because it was fulfilled through Jesus. There's a great example of this, and I'll do it quickly, in John chapter 4. Do you remember the scenario where Jesus encounters the woman at the well? John chapter 4 says this. It says Jesus had to go through Samaria, and so he takes his disciples, and they go through Samaria, and they end up at Jacob's well. Now, Having to go through Samaria was not necessarily a true statement. In fact, most Jews did never went through Samaria. There was the northern part, uh, and there was the southern part, and Samaria was in the middle, and it was a mixed group of people. And they were mixed because it was a result of Jews that had intermarried, that were no longer fully blood Jewish, and therefore the Jewish people wouldn't have anything to do with them. They hated them. They were a mixed breed, if you will. That's exactly what they were, exactly how they treated them, and how they spoke about them, and they wouldn't step foot in their land. And so the Jewish people, when they were traveling from the south to the north, and north to the south, they would go nine miles out of the way, up and over, and nine miles back in, just so they didn't have to walk into a land that was not Jewish. Hated the Samaritans. Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. He didn't. He could walk around, but he does. He cruises right through it, takes the disciples with him. He's tired, leans against the well. You remember the story? The disciples go in to get water, and a Samaritan woman coming to draw water has this encounter with Christ. And she has this encounter, and it's a really amazing one, but she has this really specific conversation with him in verse 19 where she says, Sir, um, I can tell that you're a prophet, because he had been telling her all these incredible things about living water and all this stuff. She says, I can tell you're a prophet. I know someone's different about you. Our fathers, the Samaritans, right, our fathers worshipped here on this mountain. This is a very sacred place where where Jacob's well was, excuse me. They worshiped here. But the Jews, they say we have to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, believe me, woman, a time is coming and is now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For these are the kind of worshipers the Father seek. The time is coming, right? The time is coming. Though you will not worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and truth. For God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him that way. And she says, the Messiah, who I know is coming, will explain these things to us. And Jesus looks at her and says, I who speak to you am he. What's happening there is that they're having this little quibble, this little argument. And she says, I don't quite get it. Because we believe what we worship here is a sacred place for us to worship. Right here on this mountain, it's got a lot of history. This is Jacob's well. This is the place where we worship. But the Jewish people tell us that we have to worship in Jerusalem. In other words, we worship in separate places. And Jesus essentially looks at her and he says, yes, that's true. But you Samaritans have it wrong because you've been worshiping essentially the wrong God. But he says, what will happen and what's going to happen through me is that you're not going to worship in Jerusalem. And you're not going to worship on this mountain, but you're going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, which is essentially coming through me. I will be the access point that both Samaritans and Jewish people worship the same God. And she says, I'm confused. The Messiah is going to have to explain it to us. He's the one that's going to make it all right. And he says, that's me. And then this incredible story continues to unfold, and the town, a lot of the townspeople get saved, and they believe in Jesus, and it's this cool thing. But the idea simply is this. There is this forging of people that happens through the reconciliation and the abolishment of the law, the fulfillment and abolishment of the law that takes two people, the Jewish people and everybody else, and forges them into one, one new people. No matter where you're from or what you look like or what your economic status is or where you're your parents are from, or what you grew up in, or whether your parents were Catholic, or they were Jewish, or they were Muslim, or whatever it is, when we put our hope and faith in Christ, no matter what your backstory is, you are new and you are reconciled to Christ and to each other. And this becomes the movement of the church. This is the body of Christ. It is the conglomeration of people that is made up in this way. So what do we do with that real quickly? A couple of takeaways here that I think are are worth noting, right? The first is that, kind of what we saw at the beginning, that our only hope for peace really is in Jesus. And that peace ultimately is, is with God, right? Like if you're wandering around trying to find peace in your heart, feeling aimless and reckless and all these kind of things, like nothing ever seems to work. You're just longing for more. Like ask yourself, what am I seeking? Am I seeking Christ and his kingdom or am I seeking peace through all these other things? We've been over that. But the second thing that we see is the peace that God gives us in relationships. A lot of us have broken relationships. And I'm talking specifically amongst believers, right? Because that's the context that Paul's talking about. He's talking about within the context of the church. Not the Vine Community Church, but the church, Big C, globally across space and time. All those that have been saved and have their hearts reconciled to Christ. God is a reconciler of people. We've been in broken relationships. In fact, a lot of you have them. You have them with a parent, you have them with a coworker or someone that, that you knew or that hurt you or that was a part of another whatever. I mean, I, there's a thousand different scenarios, but we've been a part of broken relationships. And one of the things that we learn in this passage is essentially is that reconciliation is always on the table because and through Christ. If we've all been saved, then we've already been reconciled together. So we have to work to understand and to embrace that reconciliation. It means that as believers, we have to be willing to let go and forgive and love. And it's not someone else's job. It's yours. So if you're waiting for your mom or your sister or your cousin to come and tell you they're sorry, that's not necessarily their role. They probably need to. And we can pray that God would work on their heart, but it's in your heart and your role as a believer, the one that's been made new, to release and to forgive and to let go. Now, that doesn't mean that... All things are going to always be perfect and all believers, we're all sinful and broken and full of whatever. But what it does mean is that reconciliation has happened and nothing is beyond God's healing hand. Even in God's family, all of those pieces can be restored. So if you're in brokenness with someone, I want you to have hope. I want you to have hope that that healing is not beyond God's hand. He has already reconciled the believer to himself and us to each other. We just have to walk in it, which means most always the problem is with us. It's not with God. He is reconciled and made new. Therefore, our stubbornness or our humanness or our part that's wounded and hurt is holding so tightly to wanting to be righteous or right or vindicated or whatever that we can't release that. And we don't release it, right? We're never going to truly find peace because we're not living in the reconciliation that God has already given us. So all that to simply say, if you're looking for peace, Christ or with God, it's only going to come through him, but with each other also. Sometimes we have to accept what God has given us already to let go and not allow that resentment and hostility to become part of our story, right? So we have we've been reconciled. Let go, forgive, love more, right? So we have that picture. The second thing that we really see there is this idea of, ideas of our, our peace is, and Jesus is that We've seen this a bunch in Ephesians. We've got to learn to stop performing and just start believing that Jesus is enough. So I say performing because this is how we approach all our earthly relationships. We work to earn, right? We work to earn our uh, affection with other people. We work to earn our spouse's attention. We work to earn our spouse's affection, our friend's affection. We work to earn social media likes. We carefully craft our posts, and then we wonder why so-and-so did like it and why they didn't and what that means. How come my last one got like 42 likes, and this one only got 23, and that must have been something I did, and they didn't like it on purpose, and then we're passive-aggressive and all that and it's like, whoa, right? Maybe they just don't, didn't see it, right? There's this great bit about this comedian who does this thing where he's like, my wife, she always wants me to like her posts. She begs me to like them. She says, how come you didn't like my post? And he said, I did like it. I told you when you took the picture, I liked it. He's like, that's good enough. She goes, no, I need you to go on so that people will see you liked it. He's like, I, I can't live like this, I can't live. The idea simply is that we do these things to perform for others. We need, or we believe we need in our soul, that type of uh, recognition from people. We want our dad to be proud. We want our kids to be grateful. We want our spouse to, to care about us, to show us attention, to go and do something selfless. All these things, right? So we work to earn. It's how our human relationships work. Sad, it's a terrible way to live, by the way, but it's true. And so it's natural that we convert that over to our relationship with the Lord. We work to earn. We think, man, if, if I can just try a little harder, if God knows that I'm really gonna try doing Bible study this year, or get back engaged and reading the Word, or pray a little bit more, or just I'm gonna try to fix. If I could just do that thing, then God will be like, hey, you're really, you know, we've talked about this. You're really doing, you're doing good. Like right? I, I'll, we're we're okay. Thanks for the effort, right? <laughs> None of that works that way. God has already done all that you need. It is totally sufficient and fully complete. You do not need to do anything else to earn his love. You cannot earn any more of God's love today if you do any more good things, and you can't lose any more of God's love if you fail today. It is perfectly consistent and full. Your failures won't cause God to love you less, and your great triumph won't cause God to love you more. Part of what we need to do is quit trying to perform and just believe that God is enough he's enough for me. I don't need everybody else's hand clapping. I don't need the support and all those things. I don't need people to tell me that I'm worth it. God has already and perfectly and wonderfully told me that I am more than enough. Paul is essentially getting us there because when we're whole like that, when we're fully reconciled to God like that, we can truly love others well. And then finally, that last little piece that I want you to see is that as the church we have got to stop trying to be right so much and just try and love more. Now, I'm saying this within the context of the body of believers, right? Like, there is always a place to try and be right. There is always a place to try and be right. Like, we want to keep heresy out of the church, right? So, you know, we, we want to fight for the things that are theologically true and noble and all those things. And they, they're important. So I'm, don't don't hear this as a blanket. But for the most part within the context we spend so much of our energy as people trying to be right. Raise your hand if you've been married more than 10 years. All right, pretty good group, right? Not too bad, not too shabby. Let me ask you this question. If you spent the, Now, Paul talks about this great story, right? He says the idea of marriage is really kind of a, a look at this great story of two becoming one, right? That's the idea. In marriage, you have these two individuals that become one flesh. Paul talks a lot about it. Jews and Gentiles, you have this picture that God has reconciled us, very similar, the two becoming one, the third race, the one. He has done this so that we might become one. Now, in your marriage of 10 years plus, if you've been married 10 years, what would your marriage look like or what would be the result if you spent the majority of your time trying to be right? Right? Well, we'd have brokenness. You'd break the heart of your spouse, right? You would essentially develop this pattern of defeat and this pattern of power or this power of dominance or this place where no one wants to share or this place of resentment you would develop full on true real brokenness it's just the way that would go it's a terrible place to be because marriage is is the actual it's the sacrificial movement of two individuals deciding they love the other person more than themselves so marriage is essentially mutual submission it's saying i'm fully independent I can like burritos, and I can vote this way, and I can think this way, and I can like this sports team, and all those things. I'm fully individual, but it also means that I love someone more than I love myself, so whatever my desires are, they become subservient to the person I love more. So it's not about me being right. It's about me loving you fiercely, and so what's the point of me being right if I destroy the one I love in the process? Marriage won't last. People become resentful. They become hurt. They become angry. They become distant. They withhold. They draw these things in. Body of Christ is really similar, right? If we're becoming two, becoming one, why do we spend so much time arguing and fighting over those essential things that we're trying to be right about? Whether it's worship style or whatever political view or whether it's this church is great or this church isn't or what this room should look like or that room should look like or why this church is like that and they shouldn't have that and they have a rock climbing wall and they don't, or whatever. It's all about those things, Right? Here's the truth. Now, great. Now, I'll be real honest. There are some outliers. There are some churches here that are in our world that are not following the Lord. So let's leave the outliers on the outliers. But for the most part, everyone is just trying really hard to follow Christ. It's really hard. It's hard to do it in your daily life. It's hard to do it at home. It's hard to, to die to yourself and love your children and your spouse and lead well and navigate financial struggles. And It's hard to live life in general. And it's hard as a church just to do this right. Like I stand up here today and tell you there are a lot of things that we don't do well. For five years I've been talking about talking about missionaries. How hard is it? Well, for whatever reason, we just didn't do it well. And a lot of things we don't do well. Part of being the church is recognizing that everybody is trying We're all dealing and struggling and walking with all kinds of things. You have no idea what another person walked in this room with this morning, what burden they're carrying, what struggle they have at home, what identity crisis they're facing, what hurt, what sin, what struggle, what broken relationship, how much they may just need to have someone tell them that I see you and I love you. But instead we're hurt because this life group met on the same night that we were going to do our Super Bowl party and they called the church first and used the room. But he knew that we were going to use the room, yet he called first. So we're not talking to them right now. This is what we do, right? We left that church mad. Why? Because they were too big or too small. Like it's their fault. Like somebody can control that. Because they don't have parking or enough of it. Or because their website's bad or the Panini Press was broken or whatever, right? Right? Try to be right less and just love more. There are times to be right, fine. But in your heart, in your marriage, in your home, in the church, these are amongst believers, try and be right less. When your believing brother has a story, you don't have to top his. Just love him, right? So this is what Paul's getting to. Two becoming one means that whoever you're sitting next to this morning is your brother and your sister like family. They're broken. They're hard to love at times, but we are knit together as one. And through thick or thin, we should welcome them and love them like family because there is no more divide. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth that comes in knowing Christ, for the power that comes in the oneness of the gospel, for the reality that you set us up with that you reconciled us to God through your death on the cross and that, Lord, you have reconciled us to one another. <clears throat> Let us be a people that understand that our peace comes only from you, that you have reconciled us together and that we are broken, and that they are broken, and we are one together. Help us try and be right less and love more. God, you are the redeemer and the mover of souls, the restorer. Of all things that are broken, there is nothing outside your healing hand. If we need to forgive someone, let us forgive. Give us the power to do that. If we need to swallow our pride, let us swallow our pride. If we need to say, I'm sorry, let us say, I'm sorry. If we just need to be in your presence more, if we need to quit pursuing peace through other things and just let you be our all. Lord, you are our King and our Redeemer, our Lord and our Savior. Let us close our time in worship by echoing these things that we heard today by believing that you are our peace, that you are all that we need, that you are Jesus, the great reconciler, the one who brings life. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. and challenge in all this becomes beginning to live these truths out. We know them to be real. We know that Christ is the reconciled, that he has reconciled us to God, That he has reconciled us to each other, but we are charged with living and engaging these truths to make them part of who we are, to live in such a way that we are the reconciled, that we understand that God is all that we need and that we can love other people well. So take those truths as the lights come on,